Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event with the distinguished Dr. Atul Gawande. Atul writes profoundly about medicine. He's a surgeon, author, researcher with a particular interest in patient safety and care, and a staff writer for The New Yorker. Being Mortal is his fourth book, and in it he wrestles as a clinician and as a son with dilemmas concerning end-of-life care. In conversation with Middlemore Hospital ICU specialist David Geller, a tool prompts us to rethink our relationship with medicine during our life, and most crucially, at its close. This session was supported by Somerset. We hope you enjoy it. The room's packed, Ethel. Um, it's interesting because in the, you gave a, an interview to the Listener magazine here in New Zealand recently where you described yourself as a, a surgeon who writes. I think you're in danger of becoming a writer who happens to be a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> does that matter to you? It actually, it, it does. The, one of my dreams is I can eventually become just Atul Gawande instead of Dr. Atul Gawande in the same way Oliver Sacks is just Oliver Sacks. <laughs> but, but I know that takes time. Yeah, it does, it, it does take time. I mean, it's interesting because um, when I look around the medical world, we're not, we're not necessarily renowned for our great communication skills. <laughs> right. um, clearly, you have them. We'll, ha we'll have to see if uh, the audience can be the judge of that. So, so tell me about your writing, because you've been writing for quite a long time now. Uh, is that something that you've always wanted to do? Has it come naturally to you? Um, it, it hasn't come naturally at all. I was not a good writer in college. Um, I got a C in my writing class at Stanford. And uh, if any of you know anything about Stanford, you know how hard <laughs> it is to get a C. <laughs> I didn't write anything professionally until I was in the middle of my surgical residency. Mm. Um, and that was the first time a friend of mine had started an internet, an internet magazine. Mm. It was 1996. Mm. So it was the Netscape Navigator browser in those days, if any of you <laughs> remember that still. And uh, writers, journalists, real writers, <laughs> did not want to write for the internet because, you know, who was going to read anything on the internet? And, uh, and so I ended up being among the friends who were dragooned into writing for um, our fellow friend. The magazine uh, is Slate Magazine, which continues to do well today. Yeah, and does. so as it went from, you know, I'd write my first article and it had 300 hits, you know, literally tens of people. <laughs> <laughs> and that was good because I was, not a good, I was not very good, but you had these fantastic editors who would tell you, this is what you're doing well and this is what you're not doing well. Mm -hmm. And I was in the middle of my surgical training and it was like doing 30 gallbladders in a row with somebody telling you this is what you're doing well and what you're not doing well. Mm -hmm. and I ended up writing about 30 columns for Slate and uh, learned a lot along the way. Mm. I get the sense that um, you write with such clarity. Uh, is it something that you, you just rattle off or is it something that you really work on and work on? How uh, do you do that? I had to learn to work on it. Yeah. It definitely does not rattle off. I'm not a natural or facile writer at all. I, um, in order to get it to sound like I'm just talking, yeah. it starts out sounding like the way I talk. <laughs> it's one of those funny things, you know, when you write and you just write the way your brain is working, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't come across very well. And you have to 
rewrite and rewrite. And I had to learn that the hard way. At Slate Magazine, they, they would have me rewrite every piece. And that was the first time I had ever rewritten anything. I, mm. I got all the way through college without ever rewriting anything. Mm. And I thought, this is terrible. <laughs> and then I got my chance to write for The New Yorker when it turned out an editor was following the column. Uh, and a friend of mine tipped me off to it. I sent him a query letter, and he said, okay, you can give, give something mm -hmm. a try. And um, I thought we'd work on the piece for two months. It ended up being about nine months. We went through 22 rewrites, five complete rewrites from start to finish. It was incredibly painful, but I had to admit that every time he would say, okay, now work on this, now work on that, you know, about the 21st rewrite, he said, this is looking great. Now cut a thousand words. <laughs> <laughs> and I just had to admit it was better every time. Yeah. And um, so learned along the way. My wife is also an editor. Mm. She um, uh, w is the literary person of the two of us. And she was really important as well in, in helping me just keep mm. mostly trimming until it sounds like talking. Mm. And that process has got easier as time's gone by, presumably. Well, I don't feel like I have to do 22 rewrites. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still yeah. usually yeah. four or five yeah. um, for my New Yorker pieces or writing the book went through multiple rewrites yeah. and yeah. distilling it down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but and not very fun. And yet you feel like you're, you never feel like it's completely done. You're, you're just trying to get it to sound decent. <laughs> mm. The book, um, this book, um, has been an astonishing success. Have you been surprised by that? Shocked. Um, you know, so it's a difficult book. You know, by chapter two, I'm telling you about all the ways in which things go wrong in your body, from the way your brain is shrinking inside your head to the fact that, you know, by the time you're 40, the light is already fading that gets to your retina and how your teeth fall apart. And, you know, that's, that's like chapter two. You got to get through that. <laughs> so uh, I felt like it was a, um, a very personal book. I was writing about um, my grandfather who died mm. at 108 in the mm. village in India uh, and what his aging process was like. My wife's grandmother who died in a nursing home in the United States. And then my father, a, a surgeon who got a brain tumor, um, an astrocytoma uh, in his brain stem and spinal cord that ended his surgical career and gradually made him quadriplegic um, and brought him to his end. And writing about them um, was something that felt important to me. Mm. But, um, and I was proud of the book when, I turned, when we finally turned in the final manuscript. But as my agent said, this is great. I no idea how it would do commercially. And the um, marketing folks, it was late. <laughs> the plan was a spring release. Mm -hmm. And four months late meant it was going to be in the, in the holiday season. Mm -hmm. And so the marketers were saying, who is going to buy <laughs> a book called Being Mortal for Their Dad? <laughs> and the amazing thing was people did. Yeah. <laughs> They bought it for their mother, they bought it for their father, yeah. parents bought it for their adult children. All of those things happened, yeah. and that was the really great and surprising thing. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, for me, you know, that book, you know, despite the grimness of the potential for grimness as we age, is, is actually quite an interestingly optimistic book. That's why, how I hoped it would yeah. be understood. I mean, I take you through this. Um, 
you know, it, it's a little bit like, I don't know if you know Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Yeah. You know, it's, That's grim. It, is, it, is, it is grim. And, and, but it ends on a kind of hopeful note, just because they've made it so bad that you could, you could feel like, well, it's not yeah. so bad, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's, I think also the, the hopefulness is coming, you know, it, it's a process of sorting out how I have talked to my patients mm. and how my own father was going through what he was going through and puzzling over why do I handle these things so badly mm. and finding that by the end I was getting competent. I was feeling like I began to understand what it meant to be competent in helping, in having to help people through something I couldn't fix. Mm. Um, you know, serious illness, uh, terminal illness, a mm. problems due to debilities of aging that you weren't going to make go away. Mm. And, and the short answer that I felt for me was really, uh, important, you know, I interviewed about 200 patients and families about their experience with mm. aging and terminal illness, um, and then interviewed dozens of, well, scores really of palliative care specialists, nursing home aides, hospice workers, uh, and there were some people who were very good at knowing how to talk about these situations. Mm. And what they helped me understand was that everybody has priorities besides living longer. The great mistake we make in medicine mm. is that, um, and in society, is that uh, we don't necessarily recognize that people have priorities in their life besides living longer. Um, the priorities people have are extremely different. Mm. You know, for one person, it's about, we all live for something larger than ourselves. Mm. Uh, I write about a philosopher who called it your loyalty. Mm. Uh, your loyalty might be your children, it might be your country, it might be an ideal like justice, it might be God, mm. but the crucial thing is that um, we don't, we have to understand what people's priorities are in their mm. life. Um, there's a very technical procedure that's a highly reliable way to find out what people's priorities are. It's called asking them. <laughs> very hard for some yeah. doctors. Very hard. <laughs> we only ask, so this is looking at people within about four months of dying. We ask less than a third what their priorities are for, uh, for their lives, if their health worsens. When we do, they have remarkably better outcomes. We're much more likely to align the care that we provide with what their goals and priorities mm. are. And when we don't align them, it, it is miserable for mm. people. Mm. Um, and I think that was the empowering thing for me, was finding that it was as simple as that, that the most powerful thing you can do is uh, simply ask people some questions mm. about mm. what really matters to them, mm. what their fears and worries mm. are, what they're, mm. what they're willing mm. to sacrifice and not willing to mm. sacrifice mm. in the course of um, the time they have. Yeah, no, um, I, I completely, I, I remember when my mother died, mm. when my mother became very ill, um, she was very clear through conversation and asking what was important to her around her last few months. So what did she say? She said, actually, she said she uh, didn't want to be in pain. She had cancer of the esophagus. It was clear that there was no cure mm. or treatment for that. She was an 84-year-old woman. Um, she was clear that she didn't want to have pain. Uh, she wanted to be at home, and she wanted to have her family around her when she needed her family around her. And those three things were enormously powerful tools to help us guide through the difficult times. It was exactly yeah. the same thing, you know, so... One of the things I would do um, as I was doing these interviews, I would ask them, what should be my checklist next week for having 
a better conversation with my patients. Mm -hmm. And they said, uh, one person in particular said, um, well, you should ask some straightforward questions. What's your understanding of your condition at, at this point in time? Uh, where you are with your condition? Mm -hmm. What are your fears and worries for the future? Mm -hmm. What are your goals if time is short? Mm -hmm. What are you willing to sacrifice and not willing to sacrifice? And so I asked my father those questions. And it led to this great conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so the same one colleague had, a, her father had a tumor in his spinal cord. And, and she asked him what a minimum level of life that would be worth living for what would be for him. And he said, well, if I can watch football on television and eat chocolate ice cream, that'll be good enough for me. <laughs> It's like the best living will ever. <laughs> and it literally came to a point where she then asked a surgeon when he was um, having to go in for emergency surgery, will he be able to have, would he, would he be able to eat ch chocolate ice cream and watch football on television? And they said, well, he may be quadriplegic, but he would still be able to do this if we went through the operation. So mm -hmm. they did go through it. Mm -hmm. And he was grateful, um, amazingly, mm -hmm. even though he was quadriplegic. Mm -hmm. um, my father, when we went through that discussion, said that, there's no way that's good enough for him. <laughs> and what he wanted was being at the dinner table with friends or family around and being mm -hmm. able to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And if he couldn't have that at least once a week, mm -hmm. that would not be... He was willing to sacrifice a lot mm -hmm. to be there at that table. But um, when it reached the point... So, so we went through a lot to do that. He went through a radical operation. He went through radiation therapy, started on some high-dose steroids on his road to chemotherapy, but when it reached a point that it was taking all of that away, he then, um, he then said, you know, now my only goal would be just control the pain mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. this was not turning out to be mm -hmm. the kind of life he wanted. Reading um, the sections in your book about your father, they were quite moving. and. Uh, no, they were very intimate, and yes, they were very personal. And uh, looking back now, because we, we were talking before your dad died in 2011, um, looking back now, um, how do you look at how your relationship with him went over that really difficult time? I mean, do you have any regrets? I mean, it sounded like a pretty extraordinary journey you were on with him. You know, most of, most of the regrets were really over conflict with my family more than anything else. I mean, yeah. it was not so much with him. It was a very, you know, I describe and sometimes excruciating detail, the, um, you know, the ups and downs. As, as, as one friend said, that um, uh, on the one hand, he was uh, glad to learn about all of the different things. On the other hand, he hoped he would not have to catheterize mm -hmm. his own father, which is what I described doing in the book. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the struggle he had with uh, the experience, just, mm -hmm. you know, not... He was a surgeon, and he, he was used to being in total control. Mm -hmm. And the navigation of that loss of control was very hard for him. Um, but I didn't have regrets about that and the way the ups and downs went. Um, as much as the sometimes differences with my mother or my sister, which I wrote about mm. in there as well, mm. where, um, you know, they, my mother, for example, I describe how my father had chosen hospice, four months on hospice mm -hmm. at the end of his life, um, which includes instructions for if when he becomes responsive, 
to call the hospice nurse and they would come and be there mm. at the bedside. But my mother at that point called the emergency services when he became unresponsive and they resuscitated him in the mm. hospital. Mm. And he woke up and was angry that he'd been resuscitated mm. uh, and signed himself out of the hospital by mm. the next day. Mm. And, uh, you know, the regret I had was the arguments with my mother about mm. having done that because it was also her own effort to come to grips with what he was going through. Mm. That's, that's very tricky. It puts, uh, puts you in a very awkward position. Like well, especially when you then write about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping you've sorted things out with your mother now. Yes, she, she, uh, <laughs> she understands. She, she understands. Yeah. We, we come to these things at different pace, don't we, you know, um, within families sometimes. And I think that's part of what yeah. was also um, learning how to do as a physician is recognizing that different people are in different places yeah. within the family. And often the patient is ahead of everybody else. Yeah. And part of the power of those questions mm. is the other people in the room hearing them. Mm. I described my daughter's piano teacher who um, had a uh, metastatic cancer and was coming late to the end of her life. Mm. But um, in the hospital looking for is there an experimental therapy? Is there something that she could do? And I asked her, I said, what, let's start at the beginning. What's your understanding of where you are with your illness at this time? And she said, I'm going to die. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm fading every day here in the mm. hospital. I'm worried I won't make it mm. more than a couple of weeks. Mm. And her husband, hearing that, later would tell me that was so important for him because, mm. number one, he'd never heard her say that. Mm. And it was a kind of a turning point mm. for both of them. And he also hadn't quite come to register it himself. Mm. Um, and there's another moment where my father, my mother is having a hard time with us, but a hospice nurse says, uh, so, you know, where would you, how do you want, when you die, how do you want your body to be taken care of? And he said, I want to be cremated and here's the funeral home I want to go to. And both my mother and I were kind of shocked because we weren't expecting that question to come. And then he had an immediate answer. Mm. So he clearly had been thinking about it. Mm. And that was part of bringing me along, but even more bringing my mother along. Mm. Atul, I want to come back to the issue of um, you know, that really technical thing that you raised, that heavy-duty bit of technology called asking, and why it is that we don't do that. And um, in the forward to your book, you, t you talk about um, the death of Ivan Illich, a book that we read at the same stage, I think, in my medical career in third year. Psychological medicine was the, <laughs> was the subject, you know. Um, sensitivity training. Sensitivity training, absolutely right. Turn us into humans, you know. <laughs> um, After beating it out of you for the first three years. And then continuing to beat it out of you for the next 15 years. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's kind of interesting there because... Uh, you yourself say that, you know, as interested as you were in, you know, even Ivan Illich's, you know, dilemma, you know, um, struggling with either death or spirituality, one of the two, that uh, you were quite keen to move on to the gathering of knowledge. And it seems to me that uh, we might, I mean, I, I, one of the things I want to explore with you is this culture of medicine and whether or not we've got a bit of a deeper problem here where we're sort of more interested in the things we do to people than perhaps the people themselves. 
Yes. So, you know, there's one study I write about that was very influential for me um, by a psychologist named Laura Carstensen, writing, uh, mm -hmm. who was at Stanford. And she had done this series of studies. They're ongoing to this day where uh, for more than 20 years she's been following a group of, of several hundred people that she enrolled in the study to follow them over the course of their lives. From, and some of them were as young as 18, others as old as 94. Mm. And at the time she started, they would carry beepers. Now she texts them, but they, she would randomly contact them. And you get the page, and at that moment you would have to um, uh, indicate, uh, you know, for example, the page might come in and say, tell me your mood at this moment. And you would record in the book from a set, a set of choices, and, you know, you might say, well, I'm angry or I'm frustrated or I'm depressed or I'm any variety of things. Um, and what she was trying to glimpse was how people's emotions change as they age. Mm. Or she might ask, you know, if you have half an hour right now, would you rather spend it with your sister or would you rather spend it um, uh, with the singer of your favorite song? Tonight, if you have time to go out, would you rather spend it at home or would you mm. rather go to a nightclub shouting at the top of your lungs above the music in order to, you know, be heard and hopefully meet somebody new you've never met before. <laughs> and, you know, there was a young signature and an old signature. Mm. The young signature, you wanted to go to the nightclub. You did not want to see your sister. You'd hang out with that mm. singer of a favorite song. And older people, unlike younger people, were not trying to have expanding social networks they were often narrowed, pared down their social networks mm -hmm. to the people they were closest to and most devoted to, um, that they also, their desires were different. Mm -hmm. They um, were people who, uh, well, when you're young, it's about achieving and getting and having and doing and feeling that you are getting recognition in the world. And the older signature was very different. People. Mm -hmm. um, wanted to simply be. They were concerned with a deeper relationship, more intimate relationship mm -hmm. with those they were close to. Mm -hmm. Well, the striking thing about it was that um, it, clear, it was clear you changed over the course of time. And, the, um, and, there were, and the, what data was showing, what she was finding was, you know, you got older, people's health measurably declined. Mm -hmm. Their disabilities increased. Mm -hmm. And they got happier. So the interesting thing that she had, that she really found, was that the 75-year-old, on average, was happier than the 35-year-old. Mm. They had lower rates of depression, mm. lower rates of anxiety. They were calmer about life. Mm. They were capable of experiencing emotions that people at a younger age didn't even have. For example, an emotion of poignancy, the ability to experience the positive and negative emotion mm. at the same time. Mm. And the... What she was unpeeling for me was the recognition that well-being is not the same as being healthy and independent. Mm. And we assume in modern medicine, you know, we don't say, you know, I want to flog people to within an inch of their life at the end of their life. <laughs> we think, of course, I'm not going to do that. Mm. And yet we find ourselves in that position. And I think the reason why is because we assume that, look, I went into medicine for health, mm. to keep people healthy, mm -hmm. to help them be strong and independent. But then we're lost when we 
when those aren't possible mm. anymore. We don't know quite what to do. Mm. And I think the jarring thing, whether it's in Ivan Illich or in her work, mm. was recognizing that in fact our duty is bigger than just health, that um, it's recognizing what well-being is for people, which mm. is around these ideas of mm. goals and priorities, and that you could make people's lives better mm. um, by helping them achieve what might be their fundamental goals. Mm. You know, getting to be around that dinner table mm. and having that preserved mm. so you could be at home mm. and not in an institution. You wrote a beautiful essay um, way back, I think, must have been 2009, 2010, um, in the New Yorker. Um, I think it was called The Way We Age. Um, sort of a homage to geriatric medicine. And um, I would imagine there's a few geriatrics in the room. <laughs> and um, this, I know there's a few geriatricians in the room. Um, I loved that essay. Uh, you know, um, it was um, a marvelous piece of writing. And you clearly are very taken with geriatric practice, and you've interviewed a lot of geriatricians. Um, do you think that the, the approach they take to their patients, which is, is the kind of approach we should all be taking with our patients, no matter what their age? Well, this is the interesting thing. Once you realize, and this is what the geriatricians are doing, once you realize the palliative care doctors are, are making sure we ask these questions in the last, at least at the last few months of people's lives, mm. once you realize we're not asking them then, you realize mm. that we're not asking them even earlier when they matter just as much. So, you know, once you start needing the help of others, mm -hmm. so this can be um, at the moment where you have aged enough and started to lose some of your capabilities mm -hmm. and suddenly find you need help just to live at home or even so much help that you can't live at home mm -hmm. anymore. The geriatricians understand that, um, that those questions about what really matter to you, mm -hmm. what really matters the most to you, and how do we use medicine to support those capabilities mm. rather than just assume the only thing that matters is living longer. Mm. Uh, the, the place that, that you, it comes home of just how much suffering there is, is you go into a nursing home and, and I visit and I describe talking to people who've just been admitted to these places. Mm. And they're miserable because they can't have a drink anymore. Mm. You know, you can't, um, uh, the emphasis is on safety. The assumption is mm -hmm. that your priority is your health. And so, you know, we make choices all the time in our home about the risks that we're willing to take and not, but not in a nursing home setting. That's not mm -hmm. typically allowed. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would meet an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient who is hoarding cookies because their medically prescribed diet requires them to have only pureed food. Mm -hmm. And it breaks your heart. Mm -hmm. Like, let them eat the damn cookies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, there's a slight chance that you could choke, mm -hmm. but this is one of the pleasures that they have mm -hmm. in their life. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, you know, what, 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 is, what matters most in people's lives, mm -hmm. and just because you're in a wheelchair, does that mean having a purpose in life is gone? Mm -hmm. No. In fact, one of our central functions should be, and that's what geriatricians, I think, understand. One of our central functions is, how do I preserve that purpose? Mm -hmm. Whatever happens along the way. And in fact, it helps people not only live better, mm -hmm. live longer too. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. I was um, 
looking at some of um, Jack Wenberg's work um, from Dartmouth, who does an atlas of variation, looking at the way different conditions are treated in different parts of uh, the same city or even diff different parts of the state or different parts of the country, because there are startling differences to people who present with exactly the same conditions, yet they're treated in very different ways. Um, and, uh, you know, that is very interesting uh, research. And there was a great study around orthopedic surgery where a group who all met orthopedic criteria for knee replacement were um, put into two groups. One went through the standard orthopedic group. One went through a group about, had, had discussions about what is it about your knee that is really driving you nuts? What are the things that you really value uh, about your life, like gardening, kneeling, doing all those sorts of things? And when uh, the group that went through the orthopedic group, the straightforward group, 90% of them got their knee, knee joint replaced. Uh, the other group, only 30% accepted the operation. It's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, it's very interesting to me that my, we talk about this in the context of my own mother. She had a knee replacement, mm. and I realized I hadn't asked her what was the real thing that we were solving with the knee replacement. Mm. And for her, it was pain. So afterwards, the orthopedic surgeon would get mad at her that she was not really doing the physical therapy, mm. and I would get mad at her about not being, you know, mm. you're not doing your exercises and all this, that, and the mm. other. But once she was free with, of her pain, she was happy. Mm. And... Um, she even admitted at a later point that, you know, I like having to take the wheelchair at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty quick. Right. <laughs> so, you know, our goals were not the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just coming back to the age residential care, because you do tell some wonderful stories of um, assisted living environments in the United States, and I know that we have them here too, um, and I'm sure Somerset provides them. <laughs> but um, but, uh, but uh, you tell some beautiful stories there, and um, tell us a little bit about some of those things. Well, first of all, I did not expect to spend two-thirds of the book writing about, um, you know, it was a book intended to be about end of life, but it ended up being as much about aging and, and these kinds of ha homes and, you know, I was very interested in some of the places that are unusual, but sort of revolutionary. I spent a lot of time with a guy named Bill Thomas, mm. who is in upstate New York, and he'd become the medical director of a nursing home as a way to make some money on the side, mm. and decided that what people were suffering from were the, pl um, were the, were the three plagues of boredom, loneliness, and helplessness. And he did not understand why there was no life in the nursing home and people were so miserable. And so what he decided to do was bring life into the nursing home by introducing plants, that people would create their own gardens, but um, even more, animals. Mm. And what he wanted was that every, every person who lived in the nursing home could have their own pet. Mm. So they could have a dog, they could have a cat, they could have birds, and that these would, you know, often there would be an, an activities person a professional who would bring in a dog, but that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the ability to have your own dog mm. or your own birds. And um, it violated the safety regulations of the state. Suppose the bird, you know, carried a disease or, mm. you know, there was permission for one um, anti-allergenic dog. <laughs> <laughs> and he had to lobby the state legislature, get permission, mm. but when he finally got it all through, and then of course was completely disorganized about how he did it. I mean, he arranged for the delivery of four dogs, two cats, and 100 <laughs> birds on the same day. 
So he hadn't quite figured it out. But suddenly, even an Alzheimer's patient would have birds and would notice when they weren't being properly fed or what their needs were, and they could care for another being Mm. and had a purpose. And it um, markedly reduced the amount of um, antipsychotic drugs being Mm. used on them, um, and longevity increased. But more importantly, people's sense of worth and sense of purpose Mm. was um, increased. Mm. And the ability to build homes you know, it really wasn't about expense. It was about building a home that was uh, structured not to be around a nursing station, but around a kitchen, mm-hmm. and not to be around um, the rules of the safety, mm-hmm. although they have to be there, but about the, but about the rules of autonomy mm-hmm. and ways that you could cultivate what gives people purpose mm-hmm. and has given them purpose mm-hmm. along the way in their mm-hmm. lives. And so there are these sort of revolutionary places um, in and around. I visit several of them and describe them. They're, they're, they're quite different from one another. But the common element is, mm. you know, the, the answer isn't always that you have to have a dog, <laughs> mm-hmm. although they're nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the answer um, mostly ranges from the ability to recognize that you are a human being with a desire to have connections mm-hmm. and to um, contribute mm-hmm. in certain ways and that you can make room for that. Mm-hmm. Do you think that kind of approach um, that is so optimistic around uh, aged care is, can be sort of pulled back a little bit to, and be reflected in our um, institutions, our hospitals? Um, and is it being um, reflected, for example, in your world in Boston? So the, the short answer is no. <laughs> it's not being reflected. I do think that it can be and should be. Um, you know, it's, it's less about the hospital than about the being part of a system yeah. that is willing to recognize that over time that your, um, what, what your big fears are about where you are with your, with your health, about what your goals and priorities are, what you're willing to sacrifice, mm-hmm. not willing to sacrifice, that we would elicit, we would, you know, I think the powerful question to ask, whether it's in a nursing home setting or in a hospital or your doctor's office is do the people who are helping you, do they know what matters to you in your life? Mm. And do they respect those priorities and goals? Mm. And even more, do they help you try to achieve them? Mm. And I would wager that if we actually asked that Mm. and surveyed people, we would not be very happy with the replies Mm. that we see. The number of people who feel... um, uh, they're imprisoned in many ways mm. in these kinds of institutions. Mm. You know, Laura Carsonson, when she did this work, people's um, happiness, you know, par- paradoxically, mm. increased their levels of anxiety, their mm. levels of depression dropped until they became institutionalized. Mm. And then it was, take me home. Mm. When will I get to go home? Mm. Which is really about the idea of when do I get to have freedom? Mm. Um, one nursing home uh, person said that, you know, in the end, they are selling not to the elderly. They're selling to the adult children of the elderly. Mm. And what the adult children coming in asking for is, tell me, is this a safe place? Mm. And, they, and he said an interesting, she said an interesting thing. She said, safety is what we want for those we love. Mm. 
but autonomy is what we want for ourselves. Mm. And we don't, you know, we aren't asking and pushing for uh, our own parents and family to be in places where that kind of mm. autonomy um, and ability to ensure, you know, are you, are we solving, are we not, mm. how lonely are people here? Mm. How purposeful are their lives? Mm. Those aren't the questions that we often ask. Mm. That's all. I want to just sort of just change tack a little bit mm. now. Um, I want to ask you about um, hard conversations because you talk about that in being mortal. Hard um, conversations. Hard conversations. And you tell some pretty sad stories in that book um, about young people with cancer, um, uh, with quite advanced cancer, um, who, and how, how do we have realistic and meaningful uh, conversations with people in those sorts of situations without completely destroying their hope. Um, have you, have, 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 I mean, you, do, you presumably have these conversations. I know I do. How do you manage that? I mean, what have you learned? Well, a couple things. One is um, it's, a, it's a process, not an epiphany. That, you know, what, one of the things um, a palliative care doctor said to me was, that I'm an explainaholic, <laughs> meaning that um, I want to give you the facts, mm. and I think that the facts are going to change you. Mm. But that's not how human beings work. Mm. It's how they put the facts in their own words. Mm. And one of the rules they wanted me to try to abide by as I go have my conversations with patients about what they're facing is that I should be doing... I should be talking less than 50% of the time during the visit. And I was embarrassed to start paying attention and find that I was speaking 90% of the time that we were in that office visit. Mm. And so a lot of those conversations, especially with people who are, who are young, but at any age, um, has been about being able to ask enough questions that let you ask, you know, what, what is your understanding of where you are? How much information do you want mm. um, from me? about what might be ahead for you. Mm. Asking that question has been very interesting because people um, will say, you know what, I, I feel like I know everything I want to know mm. and I don't want to talk about that now. Mm. But that's where the process rather than an epiphany, you know, I used to think that that was a failure. I had not gotten them to confront the fact of what's happening here. You know, mm. we've, we've tried two different lines of therapy. They haven't worked. They've had a couple visits at the hospital. Mm. Things aren't going well. Mm. But you've opened the door, and then a couple weeks later, you ask again, and they say, mm. okay, mm. I, I do want to talk about mm. it. And, um, uh, and then there's you know, 10% of people or so for whom there is just very severe denial, and that's often where I need help. Mm. I need to turn to mm. um, uh, the geriatrician or the palliative care doctor or people who, who have, mm. you know, the, these conversations, someone pointed out to me, requires much skill as doing the operations that I do. Mm. And, that, um, and that therefore, just like doing more of these operations makes me better, having more of these conversations mm. makes make me better as well. Yeah. And some people have more experience than, yeah. than you do. Yeah. And so turning to them for help yeah. is sometimes absolutely necessary. Mm. So it's been a mix of experiences. I've definitely been, I've gone too far and I describe episodes where I'm way too blunt. Mm. You know, this is the disease you're going to die from. Mm. 
like, okay, that didn't work. <laughs> um, and then other times when I've been way too coy mm. and they never got it mm. and, um, and it's led to complete misunderstanding, mm. finding the ways that you're actually aligned, mm. that what matters to them or what we're pursuing and that they have, that we're on the same page about what might be coming mm. uh, takes time. I mean, you're, the, you're a critical care doctor. You're taking mm. care of a, a large percentage of your patients die. Mm. Some do. <laughs> what, what have you found are the ways that matter? Well, I think that um, it is a process. You're absolutely right. It is about a relationship. The relationship in my setting is often a bit truncated because it's you know, maybe a week, maybe a few days, maybe a few hours sometimes. So it's really about trying to make some kind of you know, meaningful human connection with a family. Um, it's usually with a family in our setting rather than with a family. Yeah, in your setting. Yeah, well, this is an important yeah, thing. Yeah for everybody else here to understand. 70% of us will die with somebody else needing to make the decisions for us. Yeah. That we will come to the end 70% of the time with somebody else needing to yeah. make core decisions. Mm. And, um, and if we've not voiced our priorities and goals, we've mm. left them in a very bad situation. Yeah. And that's often when they're ending up in your hands in the that's absolutely right. Here. I think you're right. And I think that um, there are some great examples. I mean, there's the Conversation Project uh, in the United States. In and Boston, we, yeah. Uh, yeah, and we have our own one here in New Zealand, um, the Advanced Care Planning Group, uh, Conversations That Count. They have a website. Um, these things are really important things to talk about. I mean, I want to come just back to make... The, when, you, um, when your dad died, um, you uh, did the cycle of completion, and you traveled with him to India, and you took him to the Ganges. You even drank the water, <laughs> um, which was quite brave, um, I thought. <laughs> um, but you completed that cycle for him, which was clearly very important to him. Um, yeah, he had left instructions that yeah. he wanted to be cremated, yeah. that he wanted his ashes, um, part of his ashes sprinkled, spread on the Ganges, a tradition that goes back thousands of years, yeah. um, out of a belief that the you know he was... Hindu, they tried to raise me as an effective Hindu, you know, <laughs> uh, and wanted, uh, when your ashes are spread on the Ganges, that is your chance to be broken out of the cycle of birth and rebirth and rise to nirvana, mm -hmm. to heaven, a, a condition called moksha. And, um, and so my mother, my sister, and I, we made the trip to India with his ashes and then, uh, and it was an amazing experience. Um, it was amazing for a couple of reasons. Um, one was that it was clearly what he had wanted and it was important for my mother um, to feel that this was happening. But the second was even for me, who didn't had a hard time buying into the idea that this is what was really happening to him. But it was apparent to me that this was this ritual that had been going on for thousands of years and that you were joining as part of something where there were hundreds of generations before and there would be hundreds of generations after us and that my father had certain things that he had attempted to accomplish in his lifetime which um, he knew would not be achieved in his lifetime mm. and that this was a kind of handoff. Mm. Um, this sense of this chain going back so far and extending so far into the future. Mm. Um, 
and that was very moving for me mm. um, and uh, very centering. Mm -hmm. I haven't rehearsed this with Atul, but I'm hoping that he'll drink a toast with me of this fabulous clear water to our colleagues in the New Zealand Health Service, particularly our hospice and palliative care friends and our um, aged care workers uh, who are often on very low wages but do a fabulous job for all of us. Yes, indeed. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.